Let us pray together. Oh Lord, our God, we come to you. We do humbly seek your face, and we ask now that as we open your word, as we come to learn from the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray, O oh Spirit, would you open our eyes. Would you unstop our ears and let us hear what you have to say to the church. We pray this all for your glory. In the great name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. As we continue in our sermon series on Revelation, I invite you to turn to chapter 3. For those who haven't been with us or just joining us for the day, we're glad to have you. We're uh, right in the midst of the beginning of a sermon series on Revelation. I've preached on chapter 1, setting the stage on how this is the revealing of Jesus Christ. That ultimately this is the revelation of God's salvation through the Lord Christ from all of eternity to all of eternity. And we therefore have added regular scripture reading to our service not to belabor us but so that we can hopefully fill in some of the gaps. I'm not able enough to preach through 22 chapters and 10 sermons uh, nor would you be uh, willing I imagine to sit through those long sermons. Some will be Old Testament reading, some as today will just pick up uh, some of the text before us. And we find ourselves in the text that I will preach at the end of Jesus' address to the church. We noted last week that the number seven is a representation, it's a symbol of completeness or perfection in this letter. Therefore, the letters to the seven churches really is... The letter to the church as a whole, the church in all places at all times. And there are admonitions and encouragements both for all of us. It zooms in, as it were, from the vision of the Son of Man we saw at the end of chapter 1 last week. We see him standing in the midst of the lampstands, in the midst of the churches. And the, the seven letters then share a similar format. All of them begin with the words to be given to the angel of a particular church. And it follows with a description of Christ picking up on that language from chapter 1. And each letter addresses the church from one who knows her, Christ, who knows the church, who is in her midst, one who's holy and true and eyes of flaming fire, feet of burnished bronze, the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end, the firstborn from the dead, the almighty, this Christ is addressing his church. He is addressing us, as it were. It is Jesus himself who brings either the commendation or the condemnation. It's curious to note that five of the seven churches receive a mixed review. I've zeroed in on the last two primarily just because they're the oddballs. The church at Philadelphia receives only praise and encouragement. The church at Laodicea receives only condemnation and rebuke. So we'll see what Christ has to say to the churches. I'll read for us, picking up where we left off from earlier, beginning in verse 7 of chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, 
And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they're Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Doors are an extremely useful invention. You might be thinking, doors, that's kind of a a simple thing. But, you know, we don't find them in all parts of the world. If you've been to the mission field, particularly in a third world country, you might notice that they use doors differently. Animals seem to come and go as they please. Everything seems to be open air and no one blinks an eye. But, you know, doors are very useful. Doors are helpful for keeping things out, keeping out burglars, or keeping out, even worse, those pesky solicitors. They're also helpful for keeping things in, keeping things in like cold air or maybe children who are just learning how to walk. They're good for keeping out certain things and good for keeping certain things in. In this passage, we'll see two doors. The first door is one that is open, And it is not meant to be closed. It's the door of faith that we see in the church at Philadelphia. But we see a second door as well. This door is one that is closed, but it is meant to be open. It's the door of repentance that we see in the church at Laodicea. Both are being misused or abused. First, the door that is open and is not meant to be closed. John begins our passage by recording the words of Jesus to the church in Philadelphia. 
to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. We could pause for a moment here. This is uh, a seeming peculiarity of the book. These angels, uh, as most scholars agree, are actual angels. Some think that they're messengers from the church or representative of the pastor or leadership of the church. More likely than not, they're, they're actual angels and they're symbolizing to us the heavenly realities of the church. But even though we see brothers and sisters in our midst here, we see the people of God in pews on uh, worship or in worship on Sunday, there is a real presence in heaven that God himself guards. And so he writes to the angels that represent these churches. But after this opening address, Jesus describes himself as the Holy One, the True One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Already we see Jesus is explaining his presence to this church by alluding to the prophet Isaiah. Now, I want to pause for a quick pro tip here in reading this letter that's oftentimes confusing or difficult to get through. Get yourself a good Bible that has cross-references. I'm not some world-renowned scholar. You can look and see, ah, John's picking up on the language from Isaiah. It's just a simple cross-reference. But, but Jesus is doing something very important here by alluding to these words in the prophet Isaiah, particularly in chapter 22 when he, when he envisions the key of David. But that's just to, to show you by way of example. Get a good Bible where you can see these things and the connections that are made. But as I said, Jesus is alluding to this passage where Isaiah represents the ruler of Israel, the leader of the covenant, as having a key. And that key unlocks or locks entry into the covenant, into the the people of God, into relationship with God Himself. He is the one who can open or who can close. And we see here that Jesus is claiming this authority. That Jesus is the one who opens and no one will shut. Who shuts and no one opens. Even more than this, Jesus proclaims boldly to this church, I have set before you an open door. Notice how he recognizes you have but little power. Now this this verbiage comes, uh, we see it as an idea in the New Testament that represents not mere weakness, but downright inability. It's not just that they're slightly weakened. It's that they're unable to open the door themselves. They're unable to keep it open. We see this in Romans 5, 6. While we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. It's not just that we weren't quite strong enough to save ourselves. We are incapable of saving ourselves. And Christ says with great encouragement to this church, I've set before you the open door and no one will close it. It's not their ability that keeps it open. It's the ability of the Savior. The ability of Christ. And that's what he means when he writes to them. You have kept my word. You have not denied my name. You have not denied that I am the Christ. That I am the Savior. That I open and shut. You see, they have abandoned their power. And they are trusting in Christ alone. Christ commends them. For this. And this much is made clear as Jesus will begin to allude back to Isaiah yet again. Look in verse 9. Notice the harshness 
in this language. Those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Beloved, Jesus here is not condemning some small, radical, sectarian group. He's condemning the Jewish people who proclaim salvation by the old covenant. He's condemning those who deny Christ. He's saying that they are in allegiance with Satan himself. That they are coming to oppress his church. These harsh words are equally as true today as they were 2,000 years ago, as John is writing. He's picking up on the language from Isaiah 45. The people of God have overturned a beautiful promise that he gives in the prophet. He says, Thus saith the Lord, The wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, Surely God is in you. And there is no other. No God besides Him. Besides Yahweh. This is the promise made by God to redeem people from every language and nation and tribe. Not simply those who are Jewish by ethnicity. And the old covenant people have turned this promise on its head. They have proclaimed salvation by another way. By works of the law and not by faith in God himself. Furthermore, we read in Isaiah 60, another illusion. That foreigners shall build up your walls. Their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut. Notice that language. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall utterly be laid to waste. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. And all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. Listen to the words of Isaiah. They shall call you the city of the Lord. The Zion of the Holy One of Israel. What's Jesus' point? He is the fulfillment. He is the Holy One. He is the one who holds the key of David. He is the fulfillment of this promise. He has opened the door of salvation to the world. Not just to Jews, but to the whole world. And that is good news because I dare say that all of us are Gentiles in here. I don't know all of you, but I haven't seen a yarmulke today. And Christ has come to open this door and no one will shut it. But we must also notice that we can enter only through Christ Notice now the ironic twist on the story after realizing this great promise that Isaiah holds forth to the people of God. Even those who are persecuting the church like Paul did, like the Jews in this day were persecuting the church of Christ, yet will they have an opportunity to enter. Jesus promises, Behold, I will set them before you. I will set them just like I've set this door. I will bring them. I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you. 
It's Christ who they are bowing down to. Not the church. The church is only the representation of the gospel and the people of God. It is through Christ and His open door that they come and find salvation. But we need to be careful here. God's not simply turning the promise for the Jews to the whole world on its head so that the Gentiles are now the promise to the Jewish people. He's not picking on Jews. He's not anti-Semitic. He created all peoples. God is opposed to everyone who is opposed to the name of Christ. That's why it's so important that they have kept His word, that they have not denied His name. He's not picking on the Jewish people. He has loved the Jewish people. He has brought forth, as He promised, the Gentiles in from the nations. It's now the Jewish people who don't like it. God is not exclusive to the Jewish nation. God is exclusive for those who would not come by Christ. We might say then that all other religions, all other ways, are in allegiance with Satan. They are this synagogue who say they are Jews and are not. Beloved, we are the Jews. We are the true Israel in whom this promise finds fulfillment. Where Christ dwells with his people. His church is the one whom he loves. And we see now the blessed promise of his presence and his protection forevermore. God will keep them. He will guard them through their persecution. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have. What is that? It's the gospel. Hold fast to it so that no one may seize your crown. Listen to these words. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Brothers and sisters, don't miss this. When John wrote, there was no temple. Jerusalem was in shambles. And God is promising to his people, I will make you a pillar before men. You will never go out of my temple. And just like the promise to Isaiah, they will call you the city of God. He says, I'll write the name of my God on you. I will write the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Yes, there's no Jerusalem now, but fear not. There's a new Jerusalem coming, and I will write that on you. And even my own new name, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the promise of an open door of salvation. No one can shut this door in Christ. I've been married now for about two months, and it's been a great joy and a delight. There's also been difficulties. For instance, in the throes of marriage, you might find yourself fighting off a plague of fruit flies in your home. And believe it or not, there's a door in my house that I love. It's the door to the refrigerator. Intended to be shut to keep out fruit flies, to keep my food cold. And yet somehow we're waging a war against these invaders. But the door is not simply meant to be closed and 
quarantined from everything. It's meant to be opened to you. That you would come to my home. That you would eat and dine with me. And this is the second door that we see in the church at Laodicea. John writes, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now let's pause for a moment. Is Jesus proclaiming, is John saying to these people in Laodicea that Jesus is a creature? He's created by God? No. This is language picked up back in chapter uh, 1. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the first and the last. In this sense, he's the beginning of the new creation. We see this teaching clearly corroborated in Paul's writing to the church of Colossae. Chapter 1, he writes that through Christ all things are created. And indeed in him all things are held together. Jesus is not the first creature. He's the genesis of creation. He's its power source. He's the one from whom all things spring into existence. And we see this as of particular importance. He's able to bring something out of nothing. And that's what we see in this church. A faith that is absent. A faith that is non-existent. This is the only letter that John records where Christ has no encouragement to them. It is all rebuke and condemnation. Jesus comes as the faithful and true witness over and against their testimony. Listen to his words. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. You probably heard a sermon on being lukewarm and hot and cold. That's not where we're going today. Remember, this is about the door that is closed but needs to be opened. Jesus says to them, you say, I am rich. You say, I have prospered and I need nothing. But you don't realize that you are pitiable. You're wretched. You're poor. You're blind. You're naked. We need to understand something. Just take a moment here and get the context of this church. They were a very wealthy city. A very wealthy church, presumably. They had two major sources of industry. One, uh, textile industry. They were, they were renowned in the ancient world for their black wool. Already you can see how Christ is presenting a contrast. Black wool as opposed to white garments. They were also renowned for being uh, kind of the source or center of ophthalmology in the ancient known world. They had developed an eye salve that could heal all sorts of maladies of the eye. And yet Jesus comes to them and says, you are blind. You boast in yourself. You boast in your riches. We give them the benefit of the doubt. They, they would boast in their spiritual identity that they have merit and worth in themselves. Beloved, we should have the words to the church in Philadelphia ringing in our ears. Christ describes them as little. You have no power. Or the church to Smyrna, the other church he commends, you're insignificant. You have but a few people. Because Jesus does not measure the health of a church in her role or her income statement or even her abilities to do ministry. Look at the church at Sardis. He says, you do all of these things. You have the reputation of being alive. You have programs upon programs and all of these things. And yet you are dead. Because your faith is not alive. Therefore, repent. Those whom I love, 
I reprove and discipline. We see this teaching in Proverbs or in Hebrews. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is in the context of repentance. It's not, as some people presume, an evangelistic call that Jesus, as it were, is standing at the door of your heart. Oh, please let me in. I want to save you. No, beloved, if Jesus wants to save you, he kicks the door in and he comes to you and he eats with you because you are his and nothing in all the world can take you from him or his grace and his mercy. But he gives you the opportunity. If you don't want to have anything to do with him, Keep the door closed. Now the the verbiage here is not easy in English, but it, it presents to us a beautiful picture. He's not just standing one time. You don't just hear a simple rap on the door and he and he hikes off. Jesus is fixed before the door of your heart, daily knocking. Won't you let me in to eat with you? Repent. My beloved, this is a call back to Christ. The the imagery is an allusion back to Luke chapter 12 where the master comes home from the feast and servants are not ready to answer the door. They're already in the company of the master. They're already saved by grace in Christ. But he's beckoning us. Repent. Have me back as the master of your house. And so I ask you the question, what does it mean to repent? Let's be practical. We can wax eloquent all day long. We can talk about the details of Revelation, what seven means, how seven spirits are equal to one, the trinity is represented against the false trinity of Satan and the beast and the prophet. We can talk about all these things, but what does repentance mean for you today? You've heard it said that it's turning away, right? We're going to turn around, make a 180 in our life. Well, we can do that, and we can still have faith only in ourselves. You see, we can think in our minds, I'm going to turn from all of that evil behind me. I'm going to turn from all of the bad that I've done, and now I'm really going to work on loving God. And I'm going to be good, and I'm not going to smoke or drink or any of those other things. That's not repentance. Repentance is opening the door to let the master back in the house. Repentance is turning from our ability and strength and trusting alone in Christ and his righteousness. You see, we have to repent not simply of our evil deeds. Yes, we do. But we have to repent also of our righteousness We don't have merit or worth before Christ. Think of Philadelphia. We are weak. We have little power. But there is good news, brothers and sisters. Look at verse 18. Jesus has just condemned this church. You are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. But come and buy gold refined by fire. Buy white garments, buy the eye salve. How can someone impoverished buy anything? It's the promise of Isaiah 55. It's the way that Jesus will end the book of Revelation. Come and buy without price. Come and buy without money. That's a picture of repentance. That's a picture 
of our daily walking with Christ. Lord, I count not my own deeds and my own merit before you. I am bankrupt. Oh God, come to me in the riches of your grace and the freedom of the gospel of Christ and save me. I have no money. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. That's the picture of repentance. And Jesus stands today and he knocks. I will come in and dine with you for free. But you must give up your life. You must lose it for my sake. And we see then the great promise. I will grant him to sit on my throne even as I have conquered and sit on the throne of my father. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen.